0: Our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading today from verses 17 through 31 as we continue our series thinking about what does it mean for us to live lives in light of the invitations of God to enter into relationship with Him. And I hope that throughout this series, you've been startled and maybe disoriented a little bit and reminded in in some small ways of the power of God's grace and work in each of our lives as He invites us to come to Him. And today, we're going to see a person that was invited to come be with Jesus, to follow Jesus, and we're going to see the choice that He made And how we can learn from that. So from Mark chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 17. Would you read with me? As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go Eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first This is god's holy, beautiful, and wonderful, and inerrant word. May He add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation throughout this series, which we are going to be wrapping up next week we 've been talking about what does it mean to hear the invitations of God. For Him to speak deeply and profoundly into each of our lives about the work that He wants to do in relationship with us. And so we've seen some unexpected realities. Jesus isn't waiting for us to come with our act together and with much to offer Him. Rather, He's invited us to come to Him weary and heavily burdened, thirsty, hungry for life recognizing that we don't have an ability to sustain ourselves. In fact, He invites us to feast on Him. He invites us to come to Him broken and weak and humble. All of those are qualities that most of us don't want to present. We want to put on our finest wear, our best outward appearance to the world, and show the world and God how strong and amazing we are. What if those strengths are the things that are keeping us from coming to Jesus? And Jesus is constantly inviting us to come to Him. Now, He invites us to come to Him often in prayer, right? We spent a whole Sunday talking about how He wants us to come to Him asking and seeking and knocking, pursuing His grace and His provision and His goodness. And He wants us to come to Him in childlike faith. Now, if you were to go back in the Gospel of Mark, just a few verses before we started reading, you would see there that that's the encounter we studied several weeks ago where Jesus said, don't stop the children from coming to me. In fact, you need to come to me like children. And then Jesus encounters immediately a rich young ruler that he invites to come and follow him. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Specifically, you're going to see that Jesus is inviting us to follow Him into salvation. To follow Him into salvation. To follow Him into sacrifice and suffering. And that's an invitation a lot of times we don't really want to hear. And then we'll see how Jesus is inviting us, not just into sacrifice and suffering, but into satisfaction and real significance, a life that truly matters. And finally, we'll see how Jesus is inviting us to join Him in strategic service. So let's use that as our outline as we study together this passage. The primary invitation of Jesus is to follow Him into salvation. And so, if you go to the heart of the text, that's what this whole story is actually about, following Jesus into salvation. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. The key question is, how can I be right with God forever? How can death become a doorway for me to enter into an eternal relationship with God? Now, kudos to this young man. He believed there was a God. There is a God who has set up an eternal reality called heaven, and that God wants to be in an eternal relationship with him, and that there was life everlasting. That's amazing. He believed all of that. And he said, now how do I get it? (laughs) How do I get it? What do I have to do? That's the question, right? What do I have to do to to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, looking at him, and by the way, loving him. I love Jesus. (laughs) He loves people, even the ones he knows are going to walk away which, by the way, is a good reminder for our orientation when we think people might walk away from Jesus. We're supposed to love them too, right? Just like Jesus did. Looking at him, Jesus says to him, come, follow me. The heartbeat of Jesus is follow me into salvation. Now, the barriers here are significant because all of us deep down really believe that we're good enough for God. Oh, I know we all will admit to our imperfections and our weaknesses. We'll all say, well, you know, I'm sure there's some really holy people. I'm no Mother Teresa. There's somebody out there who's better than me. But all of us deep down have, a, have sort of a spiritual DNA that thinks we're good enough for God. So Jesus does something pretty amazing. He reminds the guy of the commandments. He says, you know the commandments, and then he lists some of them, right? Uh, He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't bear false witness about yourself, don't defraud, which is probably an interpretation of thou shalt not covet. In other words, there's a kind of pursuing and selfish ambition that is about taking other people's glory and goodness and stuff. And then he says, and honor your father and mother. So he takes what's called the entire second table of the law. And he says, how about those? Let's just start there. And the young man is confident. He says, teacher, I have kept all of those since I was a youth. Well, just pause for just a second. Do you think that's true? He had never lusted in his heart? Never been angry in his heart towards a person? Never, never coveted anything? Are you sure about that? See, the law has this great capacity to expose the fact that we're really terrible at loving our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus doesn't even introduce the first table of the law, which is all about loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Having no other gods before you, not making for yourself any graven image. That's crazy. Not having any other gods of your own creation that you think, well, this will satisfy me. So Jesus uses the law to expose the reality of this young man's life. And here's what the young man should have gotten, and that is this, that none of us can keep God's law perfectly or completely. Scripture says to us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not just a New Testament concept. The prophet Isaiah 800 years before Jesus said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. There's not a single person that can say they have kept God's law perfectly. In fact, God's law has a unique effect. It's used by God to tutor us into our need for His grace. It reveals the depth of our sin. So, Scripture says this, "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." So, Jesus takes the law, and He says, I'm going to hold up a mirror to you and ask you to do this. Well, the young man is bold or very unaware of the reality of his life, and I'm not saying that relatively he might have been very good compared to all of his friends and family and neighbors and co-workers, but he's not keeping God's law perfectly. So, the law is used by God, but then Jesus sort of tightens things down a little bit farther. He says, you got to come follow Me. You want to inherit eternal life? Come, follow me. Which brings us to this question. Who are you and I following? You say, well, I'm not following anybody. I'm an American. And we have this great illusion in America. We have no kings. We don't follow anybody. Just ask all of my friends that are in my political party that I follow. (laughs) The truth is, All of us follow somebody. Scripture says that every one of us is dead in our trespasses and sins. Why? Because in them we once walked. We walked in the pathway of our sins and our trespasses. And who were we following? (laughs) Check this out. Check out what Paul says. We were following the course of the world. We're always following human philosophies and human ideologies and human-centered kingdoms. Not only that, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we are following Satan, God's opponent. Jesus told a whole group of religious leaders, he's like, you know what, I want to tell you something about who your your true daddy is, and it's not Abraham, it's it's Satan. Well, they didn't like that. (laughs) But see, all of us are caught up in the kingdoms of evil in this world, and we follow the reality of those evil kingdoms, and then we follow the desires of our own flesh. We carry out the desires of our body and our mind, and as a result, all of us are children of God's wrath. In other words, because we are following our own wills and the worldly ideologies that are against God and Satan himself, the end result is that a just and holy God must pour forth his wrath, wrath upon us. And we may not like that reality, but that's the reality Jesus is trying to lead this young man to understand. I think in part, Jesus is asking the young man to reflect on this question. What will it take to save you from your sins and bring you into God's kingdom? Do you really think that trying harder, running faster, getting smarter, understanding spiritual secrets will save you? You're wanting the magic key to get into the kingdom but you're wanting it without following the king. Isn't that odd? None of us would ever do that, right? We would never want to go through baptism or walk an aisle or say a certain prayer and do that rather than actually having to follow Jesus all the days of our life. But see, that's the way into the kingdom is to follow the king. The disciples, by the way, are shocked at this. They're, they're, they're surprised because according to them, they're looking at this guy and they're like, man, I saw his Boy Scout merit badges. You know, he was an Eagle Scout. And by the way, uh, my, my cousin's uncle knows his father and he, he's really good to his parents. He keeps his lawn mowed. He does all of these things. He gives a lot of money down at the local synagogue. And the disciples are shocked at what Jesus is saying to this young man. So Jesus says to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's actually much, much harder to enter God's kingdom than you and I can imagine? We come up with easy ways to get into God's kingdom. Being good enough means that we don't actually have to be holy like God. Getting a secret prayer code or doing a certain ritual that gets you into kingdom of, of heaven means you don't have to follow the king. It's, oh, it's, it's much, much harder than we imagine. Jesus portrays the path into eternal life and salvation as a way, a path that you have to follow the king in. And so he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, Easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. There are many people who think they are headed to heaven, but they are literally headed for a spiritual cliff into an eternal abyss. We, by the way, Satan is not in charge, but a prisoner being tortured along with you. The gate is narrow, Jesus says, the way is hard. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. They're few. You see, it takes nothing less than a miracle for you and I to understand that the way of salvation is to follow the King, and His path that He took was hard and narrow. And to follow Him means to to stay on that path, and it takes a miracle of the working of the Holy Spirit of God to set our eyes open so that we realize we can't follow God's law, that we are subject to His wrath. He gives us new understanding in our minds. He calls us out of darkness and says, come follow me. All of that is a work of God that is a miracle of grace. Jesus says to the disciples as they're exceedingly astonished he says they they say to him who can be saved the disciples outcome of this conversation is for all of them to go we are all in deep kimchi we're in really bad trouble here i'm messed up who can be saved jesus response is with man it's impossible But with God, all things are possible. You need a miracle, Peter. You need a miracle, James. Chris, you need a miracle. Maggie, you need a miracle. Donna, you need a miracle. Guess what, Jason, you need a miracle. Because without that miracle of God, that working of God, you won't be following Jesus. So here's the question. Is Jesus God to you? Now, Jesus addresses this with this young man. He he says, why are you calling calling me good? Uh, This may seem unusual to you and me, because we would say lots of people are good. But in Jewish culture, particularly first century Jewish culture, you you refer to God as the ultimate good. And so when when he's, he's saying that Jesus is good, Jesus is trying to simultaneously ask him, Uh, two questions and point out the nature of God's reality. He says, only God is good. So, the question is, am I God? That's what Jesus is asking him. Am I, Jesus, God? Are you you acknowledging me as your God? Are you just thinking of me as a good teacher? C.S. Lewis points out rightly that Jesus has not left room for us to think of him as a mere good teacher. The demands that he makes are ridiculous. The reality of his claims are push us to ask, Is he insane? Is he delusional? Is he a liar trying to gather an army for himself? and a fool for believing that he could defeat the Roman Empire? Or is he who he actually said he was? Time and again, Jesus brings this reality to every single person. Will you follow me as your God? So, to Peter, he says this, Who do you, Peter, say that I am? Who do you? Well, Peter said, I've seen some crazy stuff, and frankly, I've listened to your teaching, and there's only one logical conclusion. You are the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. You are, you are everything I've ever hoped for. And you are the sent one of God for me to follow. You're the Son of the living God. Who do you say Jesus is? Oh, I know that we all know the right answer. The question is whether or not that's where you actually place your life. Jesus says so clearly to another one of His disciples, He says, listen, am am I your only hope? Am I your only hope? Well, That's a great question. So, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, to come follow Jesus means you have to say, I have no other hope for salvation except to follow Him. He went that away, way and I'm following Him. Because where He's going is life, and all other paths don't lead there. Can you be real before your version of Jesus? See, if He's God, He already knows all your dirty little secrets. He knows what's hidden in the closets of your lives, those things that you want to forget and you hope everybody else has forgotten. He knows the deepest character flaws, and guess what? He knows what bad things you're going to do tomorrow that you haven't figured out yet. So, can you be completely real before you're Jesus? Or do you have a Jesus that you have to hide and cower in shame and try to polish yourself up and scrub yourself up before? That's not the real Jesus. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, I'm the light of the world. Guess what? When I show up, darkness runs away. I show up and I shine light into your reality. If you follow me, you won't be walking in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Follow me because this way is darkness and that way is light. And if you want to live, you're going to stay in the light of life. So the invitation of Jesus, first and foremost, is to follow Him into salvation. But there's a demand here. You want to follow Jesus into salvation, that is the way of sacrifice and suffering. There's no getting around it. You're going to follow Jesus into sacrifice and suffering if you're going to follow him into salvation. Jesus looks at the young man, he loves him, and he says to him, "You're lacking one thing. If you want to really come home to to perfection here, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven." And come, follow me. Now, don't displace things. I I really believe a lot of biblical teachers in earnest get this wrong. The one thing is come, follow me. The selling is what it takes in order to be free to follow him. You're going to follow me, you're going to have to ditch all the baggage. Because my way is light and hard. The young man is disheartened. You take that word, it means to suck the life right out of you. But instead of doing what He's invited, He goes away sorrowful because He had great possessions. Following Jesus will cost you. And the first thing it will cost you is, it'll cost you all other gods. All other gods. Uh, wealth here represents the reality of the sources of significant security and satisfaction that many of us find through wealth. Wealth makes us feel safe. We have enough money in our bank account, we feel like we're safe. Wealth makes us feel like we can buy pleasurable things or comfortable things, and it gives us good things in our life. So so we feel like that's going to bring us satisfaction in life. And the more wealth we have, the more important we think we are, the more significant we are, right? So Jesus says this, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, in a very strong hyperbole, he says, you might as well try and shove a giant camel through the eye of a needle. No, all those things you were told by Sunday school teachers about this being some narrow gate in in Jerusalem, that's not true. None of that is true, okay? Jesus means a big camel going through a needle. Big camel. Try and fit it through the eye of a needle. It's impossible, right? He's saying, here's the deal. The way of salvation is like the eye of that needle, and you got to come with all your baggage stripped off, all your other gods out of there. No, this is not new for Jesus. Jesus has made this point over and over again. You want to follow me? You can't serve two gods. You don't get Jesus and Anything. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve your career. You can't serve your sexuality. You can't serve your pride. You can't serve your ambition. You can't serve wealth and Jesus. Period. You can't serve your own comfort in Jesus. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the others. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. You can't do it. Stop trying to do it. The reality is the gods of this world will always choke out your spiritual life. You remember the story that Jesus tells about a farmer going out to sow three different kinds of seed, and the seed falls on different kinds of ground, and one of the kinds of ground, the seed falls on this kind of ground, and these thorns and thistles grow up. The plant comes up, but it doesn't bear any fruit. It doesn't have any grain upon it, right? And Jesus, when explaining that parable to His disciples, said this about that kind of soil. He said, the cares of this world... The deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things, enter in and choke the Word of God represented by the seed, and it is no longer fruitful. Can I ask you, is one of those things strangling God's Word in your life? Your desire for Jesus plus something else? The possessions and wealth and the things that you have. Maybe it's just the burdens of life and they're so distracting and they're choking out the reality of God from coming to bear fruit in your life. Now here's the thing. Other gods are always a bad deal. I don't know if you know that, but they are. They're always a bad deal. They'll promise you all kinds of things. They'll promise you power, significance, security, satisfaction. They'll promise you all kinds of pleasure. But the other gods are always a bad deal for your life. What does it profit a man, Jesus says, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's interesting, one of the wealthiest men in the world gave an interview this week. He's lost yet another one of his lovers. Another one of his lovers has abandoned him, a person that he just had a child with three months ago, and he, they were, he was being interviewed. And in the interview, he referred to himself three times with the word lonely. And he says, I can't stand it if I don't even have a dog with me. And I thought, Dude, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? To forfeit your soul, what can you give in return? So Jesus wants you to understand, if you will follow me, it will cost you all other gods, and that will hurt people. It is the way of sacrifice and suffering. Don't say, oh yes, I'll give up all the other gods, but I don't want it to hurt me. It will. Following Jesus will not only cost you all other gods, it will cost you all other priorities. Jesus is not just simply telling this one rich young ruler to follow Him. We have multiple encounters where He uses that phrase. So if you go to Luke chapter 9, you'll see a sequence of people who are interacting with Jesus about this call to come follow Him. And Jesus demands that they sacrifice certain things. To one guy, He demands that He sacrifice comfort. The guy says, To Jesus, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I heard your call. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Any of us ever done that? Gone to a spiritual retreat? Come to a place of climax in a worship service where we go, I'm going to do whatever you want, wherever you go, just not next door to my neighbor who needs to hear about you. Right? Because that would be uncomfortable. They may not like me. Jesus said, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He went right for what was most important to this guy. He said, You want to be comfortable more than you want to follow me. I think the great religion of America is actually comfort. We all want to be comfortable. Following Jesus is not just going to cost you comfort, it'll cost you other duties and obligations. Jesus will have no other priorities that are before Him. So another young man, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And the young man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This is a duty of sons. Lord, I'm going to follow you, but first got to take care of stuff at home. I have other duties and other obligations. And Jesus says something that seems so harsh to us. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I've got a bigger priority for your life than all of the other priorities and duties. Well, we don't like that, do we? Jesus, now, oh, Jesus, you're stepping on toes. Well, Jesus has already made it clear. He's also going to cost you relationships. To another young man that comes up to him, he says, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family. I want to go home. I want to keep those relationships. I want to make sure everything's at at peace at home before I do this. And, And he's not just saying, I need to go say goodbye, folks. What he's probably really intending here is, I need to go make sure that none of them are going to be mad at me when I follow you. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus will cost each and every one of us, and it will cause us suffering. Peter, who was there on that day and so many of those days when Jesus was making these demands, said this to the church. He said, church, you want to hear the calling of Jesus on your life? For for to this, you, church, have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might what? Follow in his steps. You've been called to suffering. Jesus is your example, and you've been called into the reality of suffering. To another church, he's going to say, It's been given to you the privilege of suffering. The privilege of suffering. Well, he's just echoing the words of Jesus, isn't he? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul would write to Timothy. Where did Peter get this? Maybe it was after the resurrection. After Peter was asked once again, do you love me, Peter? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. As they're walking along the beach, Jesus does something very unusual. He prophesies a reality into one of his disciples' life. And he says, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John, who was following along behind them and heard that conversation, puts in this editorial note. He said this, Jesus said this, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. By tradition, the church has recognized the likelihood of this history that Peter was crucified upside down At his request, because he would not be crucified right side up as his Savior was. Do you understand what it meant for Peter to hear these words? Peter, you're going to follow me in a literal way all the way to the cross. Decades will pass, Peter, but it's going to happen. And then he says, Peter, when this happens, remember who you're following. You're following me. If it's good enough for me, oh, it's good enough for you. Brothers and sisters, you may say, well, that's not not true for me. I'm not experiencing physical persecution. And by the way, American Christians need to get over this. You are not being persecuted anywhere in America. That is a mythology sold to you by conservative politicians who want to stoke your fear. America has the greatest religious freedom any human beings have ever experienced in human history. There may be things that are uncomfortable, there may be laws that restrict some of your civil rights, but you are not being persecuted in America. And when you go up to your brothers and sisters in places like Myanmar and Indonesia and Bangladesh and you whine and complain about being persecuted in America, they want to look at you and throw up. Or they might ask you, really? When was the last time the authorities invaded your worship service that you had to hold in the middle of the night and then they proceeded to beat all of you, rape your women, and then you had to go back to church the next week? Stop whining. So we have to be honest, maybe we're not experiencing that kind of persecution, that kind of physical cost, but following Jesus will cost all of us our very lives. Jesus has already made this clear. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You're going to die every day that you follow Jesus. Some part of you must die. Carrying your cross is not carrying difficult circumstances. It's you dying to yourself. Dying to the world. Dying to those desires that you have within you. Following Jesus means you make a choice to say for the sake of Christ and His kingdom, this part of me must die in order for Jesus to be alive inside Whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Driven, controlled, compelled by the love of Christ, we conclude this. We conclude this as believers. Jesus has died for all to give us the gift of salvation. If we will but believe in Him, we can be saved. Therefore... All have died, and He, Jesus, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised from the grave. So, brothers and sisters, when we say we're going to follow Jesus, we're following Him into death. Death to self, death to our own desires, death to our own dreams, death to our own plans, that Jesus may come to life in us. You say, well, gosh, you're you're not enticing me much here. Following Jesus is full of sacrifice and suffering. Oh, yes, but don't ever think your sacrifice and suffering outweighs the satisfaction and significance that there is following Jesus into satisfaction and significance. Peter hears all of this, and of course, Peter, you know, he's, we should be grateful for Brother Peter because he always says the things that come to our minds and hearts. So Peter says to him, Okay, all right, that guy left. He's not going to get into heaven. Oh. But we left everything. <laughs> I left my fishing business, Jesus. I left my wife at home to follow you. What do we get? Jesus both rebukes and promises here. He says, see, Peter says, see, we have left everything involved you. Jesus says, I say to you truly, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands leaving your nation for the sake of Jesus, for my sake and the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What he's trying to say to Peter is simply this. Peter, don't be thinking you gave up anything for me. You gained a hundred times everything that you've been giving up. And brothers and sisters, the promise of Jesus Christ is that if we will follow Him, He will take care of those temporary needs, and He will bring us into a place of eternal life where there will be a greater goodness and a greater reality than anything we have ever comprehended. There are earthly promises of provisions here. Yes, but the promise of the significance and the security that comes from walking with Jesus is to be embraced as a whole reality. If I give up the world for Jesus, I gain everything. They once asked the great African missionary David Livingston what it was like to give up so much for the kingdom of God. Livingston paused as an old man and said, I've given up nothing. Nothing for the sake of Jesus. I've gained it all, folks. Jesus' kingdom is a topsy-turvy reality. We think we are losing, but we are gaining. Every time we die to self, there's less of Chris and more of Jesus. There's less of Karen and more of Jesus. Every time we make a choice to give up something on this side of eternity, we gain a greater reality and an eternal perspective. And God has promised, you are never going to go without what I am going to place in your life. I'm going to give you more. That seems to be why he reminds them here. Of His topsy-turvy kingdom principle, many who are first will be last and last will be first. In this earth you may get much significance, you may gain much honor, you may gain much wealth, but in heaven you might have little. Many of you who have so little here, nobody knows your name, nobody cares about you. Everything has been given up for the sake of Christ and here you are no one, but in heaven you are glorious in mansions filled with all of God's goodness and provision. And each of us has to ask ourselves: Am I ready to follow this Jesus with His promises personally? Now, I, I chose that word very, very carefully. I don't mean individually. We've got too much individualism in American Christianity. Too much of me and Jesus and a water pistol will take out the kingdoms of hell. But each and every one of us must come to the face the reality that Jesus is talking to me about whether or not I am following Him. And we need to get our eyes off of everyone else and ask ourselves in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? This is why your small group leaders, by the way, fuss at you whenever you start using you statements during our question and answer time uh, on Sunday nights. We want you to say, I... (laughs) I am making this choice. I need to change. I need to repent. You remember that encounter we mentioned earlier about Jesus uh, uh, having Peter walk with him, telling him what was going to happen to him about in, in his life, how he was going to die for the glory of Jesus Christ? Peter looks around, <laughs> just like you and I would, right? And he sees John trailing behind. And so he says, What about Him? If I have to die, if I'm going to follow you all the way through the cross, what about Him? Jesus says, If it's my will that He remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you to stop wanting to live somebody else's story? You need to ask what it means for you to follow Jesus in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace. Don't be looking around at what Jesus is doing in somebody else's life. You follow Him. Finally, the invitation to follow Jesus is not simply to follow Him into salvation, not just simply to follow Him and to sacrifice and suffering with greater satisfaction and significance there. But it's an invitation to follow Jesus into strategic service. Now, you have to think about this a little bit because it's not implicit in the text. But every time Jesus is inviting people to follow Him, starting at the very beginning, He's inviting them on mission. Because He's a man on mission. So to follow Him means to join Him in His mission to bring the kingdom of God into this world. So when Jesus encounters these disciples, uh, these men who will become His disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, He sees Simon and Andrew casting a net into the sea. Why? Because they're fishermen. And Jesus says to them, follow Me and... I will make you into fishers of men. You're going to have a new identity. You're going to have a new mission in life. Before you were catching fish, I'm going to send you to catch men. To follow Jesus is to get on mission with Him. And their response is to immediately leave their nets and follow Him. James and John, just down the shore, they're going to do the same thing, right? Matthew is going to hear that calling at a tax collector's booth. Matthew, leave the booth. Time to go. There's a gospel you need to write. <laughs> so, folks, when you follow Jesus, he's saying, Join me on mission. Join me in this reality. Follow Him through death to self into fruit-bearing life. Yes, going on mission with Him will cost you, and yes, there's great promises, but one of the great promises is that your life will actually matter in an eternal way. John 12, 24, John records these words of Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You want your life to matter, to count, in the kingdom of God, die to self, join Jesus on mission, and watch Him make your life bear fruit. Follow Jesus into His work and into the Father's pleasure. John goes on to record these words of Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Same, same calling, right? You're going to serve me? you got to follow me. you got to do it my way. You have to have the spirit of Jesus, the tone of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, and the place of Jesus. He says, he will follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. So where's Jesus at work? In your community, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your friends. Folks, you're never going to find that you have ever woken up on any given morning in a mission field that Jesus hasn't been to yet. He's already at work. He's inviting us to join Him in that work. And He promises us this, if we will serve Him in this way, the Father will honor us. We will have honor and significance where it really matters forever. So, The calling is to follow Jesus into calling others to hear Jesus' voice so they can follow Him. I mentioned David Livingston earlier, and this is going to be our last passage. If you go to Westminster Abbey, the body of David Livingston is interred there. Not his heart, by the way. The Africans who carried him to the shore as he died in Africa after a lifetime of missionary service removed his heart before they shipped his body back and they buried it in Africa because they said, here is where his heart is. But his body is interned in Westminster Abbey. The scripture that is engraved on his tombstone is from this passage, from John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So we have the same kind of relationship with God that Jesus had with Father God, and He says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's the dying that He invites us to follow Him in, right? And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is the part that's on Livingston's tomb. What drove David Livingston was the fact that Jesus had other sheep who were not yet in the fold. They hadn't yet heard the call of the master. Jesus said, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. David understood that for him to follow Jesus' men, he had to go tell them, there's a Savior who wants to be in relationship with you and He's inviting you to come. Join Him. And then there's the promise. There'll be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. So what kind of sheep are you? Do you hear the master's voice? Where is he calling you? Today? This week? Who is he calling you to speak to? What is he calling you to give up? What's keeping you from following your master? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that right now, you would reveal to each of our hearts and minds all that we need to hear. You have promised that your sheep hear your voice. So I, I'm standing in the sheepfold with my fellow sheep and we are we are saying we want to hear your voice right now. We want your Holy Spirit to speak to us and where there needs to be conviction of things that we've been carrying with us, we need to set aside. Where there's pursuing life apart from you that we need to lay aside and, and pursue after you where there's people who need to hear your call to follow and we are the agents of that voice, we want to be that. So Lord, speak to each and every one of us. Work a miracle of grace. Bring us into eternal life. If today somebody has finally realized for the first time that they are not following you into salvation, but some form of man-made religion... May this be the day and the moment and the hour when they repent of their sins and place their faith in you. Oh God, do this work, we pray, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.